Lord, to make sure that what comes from the, I was going to say pulpit, it's a bit grand for a music stand, but you get the idea, that what comes from the front is God's word, uh, not just the ideas of whoever happens to be here. We try and preach consecutively through books of the Bible to let the Bible shape the message. And at the moment, we're in this prophet, Micah, who lived about 730 years BC, 730 to about 700. Today's reading is from about 701 BC. And he's been warning God's people that they're going to get, well, they're going to get conquered. The Israelites are going to get conquered. We're actually going to read today from verse 9 of chapter 4. And you'll see three speeches. Each begins with now. See if you can spot them as we go through. Uh, Three speeches as Micah speaks of what's to come. So, Micah 4 and verse 9. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counsellor perished, that pain seized you like a woman in labour? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labour, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples. You shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. A siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labour is given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, uh, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of man, And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nation, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land, and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I'll root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I'll execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. If you look at your life honestly, how successful do you feel? Or perhaps turn it around. How often do you feel just utterly defeated? Uh, everyone 
uh, tells us from the advertising uh, agencies uh, through to school teachers that we've got to aim to be the best, shoot for the stars, achieve all you can. But, but as you look around your life, how successful have you been? And are there areas of your life where, where you're very aware that actually or failures on the horizon, or at the very least, uncertainty. Very few of us walk through life with such confidence that that we are sure we're going to conquer everything that comes towards us. It's just a myth, isn't it? And that's what's painted for us, you know, the hero who stands on his own two feet and marches triumphantly through life. But, But it's not reality. Things go wrong. The, the, the dream man who was going to make your life complete, the dream girl who, who was going to bring endless bliss. When you marry, turns out to be, well, okay, but hardly delivering endless bliss. Uh, the job that you thought, uh, that you worked hours and hours for, strove with all your might to get hold of, that you were delighted to be given, uh, then turns out to be exhausting. Uh, not delivering the, the satisfaction that you hoped for. In so many areas of life, when we're honest, we look out and we see defeat on the horizon, things that we cannot conquer. Um, maybe if you're, if you're a Christian, you're particularly aware of that in your, your spiritual life. You, you read the Bible and you, you read that we're full of the Spirit. And you wonder why so often you keep falling back into the same old patterns of sin and disobedience. And you read about Jesus being the king of all the nations. And you look around and think, well, what a mess he's making. We feel weak and defeated. That's certainly the case for those who will be first listening to Micah. In some ways, it seems strange, doesn't it, sitting in Leeds in 2020 on a Sunday morning and reading a strange-sounding prophecy from, well, 2,700 years ago. Micah's Micah's hearers, those who were sitting there in about, as I say, about 701 BC, would have been sat very aware that they were about to be defeated. The big foreign power, the Assyrians, had come in to Israel and were surrounding them. Israel were a weak nation, okay? This is like China invading Wales. Okay? You, you just know who's going to win. No disrespect to the, to the Welsh. And so for Micah, the, the enemies are at the gate, and they're literal enemies. I mean, that's something very few of us, I, I suspect, have ever faced. Literally, people are outside the wall waiting to come in. Doom awaits. And so Micah gives three visions. Each time they begin with now, uh, we, we get it in verse 9, now, why do you cry aloud? Then in verse 11 is the second time round, now many nations. And then 5 verse 1, now must your troops. These three visions, they're not really consecutive, but he's, he's, if you like, painting three pictures. Now look at this, now look at that, now look at this. He's not describing all that's going on in front of him. He, he's sort of calling their attention. Now, look at this. Uh, the ones in chapter 4, I just want to look at very quickly. And they really follow the same pattern. In fact, all three follow the same pattern. Micah says, you are going to die, but there's going to be a resurrection afterwards. You will be defeated, but then you'll move to victory. So verse nine, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? He's being sarcastic. Look what's happened to your leadership, okay? No one's standing up and, and taking, taking the lead. And so what's going to happen? Well, verse 10, writhe and groan, for you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. You are going to be conquered, in other words. You'll be taken away from your home city off to this strange land, Babylon. Excuse me. But is that the end? No. 
what's going to happen. There, verse 10, there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. Okay, you are going to lose. Mark is pretty straight with them. You are going to be judged. You are going to be conquered, but then you'll be rescued. So down and up pattern, if you like. That's why I call it death and resurrection. Also, he goes around the same circle, 11 to 13. Second vision, now many nations are assembled against you. Okay, you're outnumbered. But, well, they don't know the thoughts of the Lord. They don't understand God's plan. Yes, God has brought these nations, and yes, they're at your gates. But, verse 13, you will arise again. That's why I call it resurrection. You will rise up again. Conquered, but will rise again. And this time, there's extra detail. They're going to be not just sort of back to life, but they're going to be victorious, conquering. This time, the pattern is death, resurrection, and then conquest. Uh, it's all image language, but I'll make your, your horn iron, your hooves bronze, your beaten pieces, many peoples. You're going to win, in other words. Now, that, that would have had a mixed reception at the time. It's a bit like someone, if, if God sent a prophet to us in the middle of, I don't know, 1942, middle of World War II, God, God turning up and say, saying, or a prophet turning up and saying, look, God is going to rescue you. And you think, Brilliant. And the prophet goes on, yeah, he's going to rescue you. He will bring you back from Germany one day. Is that good news or bad news? Well, it's sort of good news. We're not finished. He will bring us back, but he's going to rescue us from Germany. Okay, so we are going to lose first. Did you see that, that pattern? In fact, in some ways, it's, it's, it's more like a prophet turning up in sort of 1810 when we're fighting the French. Okay, a little history lesson, fighting the French, Napoleon, they're the baddies. And, and the prophet turning up and saying, don't worry, you will lose, but God will bring you back from Germany. And, and you think, well, the English at the time think, well, why Germany? They're not the baddies, the French. Uh, as Micah preaches, preaches, the Assyrians are the baddies. And Micah slips in, well, don't worry, you'll be rescued from Babylon. Think, well, why? What are the Babylonians doing? He's predicting what's about to happen. And about 150 years later, well, along came the Babylonians. And they did indeed defeat uh, the Israelites and take them off to captivity. But we're not going to concentrate too much on kind of ancient history lessons this morning. Do you see the pattern? Death, resurrection, conquest. Down, back up, and then this kind of victory where they conquer everybody. But, but to those listening to Micah, it just wouldn't have looked likely. The enemy were at the gates, okay, as they peered over the battlements of Jerusalem, as they saw that the Assyrians had sort of captured every other village and town and city, they'd think, no, we're stuffed. You're telling me, Micah, we're going to be okay, but that's all I've got to rely on. My eyes say that we are dead. My eyes say that we're defeated. The idea of us being this victorious, triumphant people is just pie in the sky. Classic religious preachers banging on about stuff with no ground in reality. And again, we're not a million miles away, are we? We hear preachers. We read the Bible. We hear that well, we hear that Christ is victorious, but we look at ourselves and think, not in my life. I am defeated. I'm downcast. Sin is conquering me. I'm not effective as a Christian. No one I ever talk to ever seems to, to come to faith. My life's a mess. We feel defeated. And so what does Micah do? Well, he changes where they're looking. 
He says to us this morning, if you like, you're looking in the wrong place. If you're looking at the circumstances of your life, uh, you're looking at all the things that are conquering you, all the things that are overwhelming you, you're looking in the wrong place. You need to get on Google Maps and zoom in to a little town called Bethlehem. 5 verse 1. Uh, we, we start on the third cycle of this now um, prophecy. Now muster your troops. Siege is laid against us. There's the bad news. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel. The judge was just their, their leader. Okay, it's not like a guy in a wig who decides court cases. It's the leader. Okay, the king is being slapped. But here comes the turn. Verse 2. O Bethlehem Ephrathah. Bethlehem. Now, in our day and age, as soon as I say Bethlehem, we're all thinking, well, that's where Jesus was born. But in those days, it, it was a, sort of where? At Bethlehem, there is no great shakes on the Israeli map. You'd have to sort of scroll in and pinch and zoom a long way on Google Maps until you found it. And yet it's going to be the origin of this ruler. See verse 2? A ruler is going to come. Okay, another king is going to come. And he's going to sort things out. And this king has two origins. This is really important. Do you see the phrase that comes twice in verse 5? You, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old. This ruler has two origins. He comes from, comes forth from two places. The first is Bethlehem. Uh, Not particularly important place. In the book of Joshua, when the Israelites go into the land and, and all the different tribes are allotted their towns and cities and villages, it doesn't even get mentioned. Okay, there's hundreds of them mentioned. Bethlehem doesn't even get a mention. It's, it's not nothing. It's not a, my, my parents live in a little village down in Dorset that has got four houses in it. Okay, I grew up five miles away. Didn't know it existed. <laughs> um, Bethlehem's not quite that small. It's not a complete hamlet, but it's, a, it's just a small town. Somewhere like a, a kind of wantage. Ever been to wantage? sort of Oxfordshire, Berkshire border. It's a small town, about 11,000 people down south. It's, some of you might have heard of it. Some of you have It's that kind of place. Okay, no great shakes. But it was famous for one thing. Uh, it was the birthplace of David. He was the great king of Israel uh, some 300 or so years before Micah's day. That's where he'd been born. Okay, Wantage. If you know anything about Wantage... It was the birthplace of King Alfred the Great, the only English king who's been called the Great, the first king of England who unites all of England together. So that's all they're famous for. You go there, there's not much going on. But they've got this one claim to fame, the birthplace of the first uh, true king of England, uh, the only great king. And so Bethlehem. So this origin, this, this origin is a very human origin. You see it in verse 3 as well. Uh, God is going to give them up, so he's going to, hand over the the Israelites, the Jews, for a period. They will be conquered until the time when she who is in labour has given birth. Talking about Mary. You're going to be conquered until Mary gives birth. Isaiah and Micah are are contemporaries. You think of the prophecies of Isaiah about the virgin who will give birth. This is Micah's version of it. Uh, and therefore, this verse is the one that, that gets quoted in the New Testament. When, do you remember the, the uh, children? Do you remember who, who, when, the, when, when Jesus was born, some people came from a long way away to see him? People who weren't Jews, they weren't Israelites. Do you remember who they were? They traveled from the east? Yeah. Brilliant, exactly. The kings, okay, the wise men. 
And when they came, they, they followed the star. They, they got to, to Israel. They went to the capital city. That's the obvious place to go. And, and said, well, where is he? And King Herod, who wasn't a true king, he wasn't a true Israelite, he'd stolen the throne. He, he gathered together the Jewish scholars and said, well, where, where is this king going to be born, this Messiah going to be born? And they say, well, Micah says it's in, well, Bethlehem. Uh, Matthew 2, verse 5, which ma- matches Micah 5, verse 2. That's just a coincidence. There's nothing spooky in that. Uh, Matthew 5, verse 2, they quote this verse and say, look, if you want to find the true king, he'll be born in Bethlehem. So a human origin, but also strangely, do you see verse 2? His coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Now those phrases, that ancient of days, from old, that those are words used to describe God in the Bible. Uh, Psalm 90, for example, in verse 2, talks about God being from everlasting. This king, although he's going to be born in Bethlehem sometime in the future, from Micah's point of view, his origins are also from eternity. His origins are the same as God's origins, in other words. Uh, Micah is picturing, no great surprises, Jesus, God and man, born, yes, of a woman in Bethlehem, truly human, but also God in the flesh, God himself, God the Son. That's why sometimes uh, when we say the creeds, these statements of faith that Christians share across the the denominations and down the centuries, we talk about Jesus being God from God. Or we talk about the, the Son who proceeds from the Father, proceeds, comes forth from the Father. It's not that God the Father makes Jesus, It's not that he he gives birth to him. No, there was never a time when it was just God the Father and he decided, well, I'll make Jesus the Son. No, they've always, but all three with the Holy Spirit, they've all existed eternally. But the reason we say that Jesus proceeds from the Father, the Son proceeds from the Father, is that, well, it's just simply another way of saying that that one is Father and one is Son. You can't have a Son, you can't call someone a Son unless they've got a Father. So it's not that God the Father made the Son, It's just that his sonship, if you like, comes from the Father. Jesus, God and man. And the earliest Christians realised that this was a truth worth defending with their lives. The full divinity of Jesus. Let me ask you a question. What is true of Jesus, the Son, that isn't true of the Father? Okay, it's like theology morning. What is true of the Son that isn't true of the Father? nothing other than the fact that one is son and one is father everything that is true of god the father is true of god the son god the father knows all things god the son knows all things god the father is everywhere omnipresent god the son is omnipresent he's all powerful he's all powerful those they are one god and that is vital to our salvation the only one who could rescue us was this god man it was a man called athanasius uh, he was a, 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 a minister in the church in the uh, fourth century. Uh, and in his days, a bunch of other Christians were beginning to say, well, maybe Jesus is, he, he's like God, but he's not fully God. And Athanasius stood up and said, if you believe that, we're going to give up on Christianity. Okay, that, that's it. It's lost. Because somebody who wasn't fully God couldn't rescue us, wouldn't have the strength to die for us and rise again, wouldn't be able to rescue us. If you deny that Jesus is fully God, you might as well give up on the gospel. 
His life was extraordinary. Time and again, the Roman emperor would decide, well, I'm with the guys who say Jesus is just kind of important, but not God. And so they'd chase Athenaeus away, try and capture him. He'd have to flee. One time he he, he fled down a river. He's being chased down a river in a boat. And he turned a corner. Uh, It was evening. He turned a corner in this boat. And he realised he was going to get caught. So he turned the boat around and started coming back up, put his hood up. And the men, the soldiers, didn't realise it was him as they came back. So they said to him, have you seen Athanasius? And he thought, well, I'm 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 a minister. I can't lie. So he said, yes, he's not far from here and then sailed on back the river. It was an extraordinary life. But these guys were staking their, their very life on Jesus being God, proceeding from the Father. And Micah says, well, Micah says, this is the one who will come and rescue. Verse four, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and they shall dwell secure, for he shall be great. Uh, many things in life will defeat you but nothing defeats Christ. Uh, Many things will overwhelm you, but nothing will ever overwhelm him. He will stand secure, and therefore if you stand with him, you will dwell secure. Nothing can get you, nothing can overcome you, nothing can defeat you, because you have one standing in front of you who is God and man. He is man, he understands you, he knows your weaknesses, your troubles. Jesus wept, he bled, he was abandoned. There is no suffering you can go through that he does not understand. We don't have a, a sort of a cold, heartless God who is, is distant and looks down and pities us in our weakness. We have one who loved us so much he became one of us and walks among us. He knows the scale of the enmity that faces you. He's able to sympathise with us, to use the language of the book of Hebrews. But he's also mightier than anything that comes against you and will not be defeated. And the amazing news, verse 3 Just catch the last verse. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. He came down to make us his brothers and sisters. He became one of us. God calls you, if you come to him, he says, come and be part of my family. Come be my brother. We say, don't we, I'll do anything for my family. That's what Jesus, I will do anything for my family. And if you are part of the human race... Jesus invites you to become part of his family. He became one of us in order that he might become our older brother, the one who can protect us. When I was sent off to to school down in the villages of Dorset, back in the old days before anyone had child protection policies or anything like that, we were just, age age four, I was just put on a bus, okay? Everyone else, off you go, uh, get off in about 20 minutes. Um, And it was pretty scary. I didn't know what I was doing. Thankfully arrived and got home and all the rest of it. A couple of years later, my younger sister, um, same little primary school, and mum said, well, don't worry, you know, James will look after you. My real name's James. James will look after you. On the bus we got, and I, like a harsh six-year-old, completely abandoned her, went off with my friends, and, and left her sobbing on the front seat. Uh, older brothers are meant to be protective. Uh, Jesus has come in order, well, in order to care for us, protect us, in order to make us dwell secure. He conquers and brings peace uh, and security. Uh, in verse uh, 5, uh, this sort of new bit of the poem begins, when the Assyrian comes into our lands and treads in our palaces. Well, verse 6, he shall deliver us from the Assyrian. Assyrian there, the, he, I don't think Michael is predicting a particular uh, race coming and attacking the Israelites. He's not doing a sort of history prophecy there. Assyrian is like a generic word for the baddies. It's a bit like we call everyone Nazi today, don't we? If you don't like Donald Trump, he's a Nazi. Okay, your, your school teacher who sets you too much homework, oh, what a Nazi. McDonald's, get rid of plastic straws and put paper straws in, a bunch of Nazis. Everyone you don't like are Nazis. Okay? In, in this area, it's Assyrians. 
It's a generic word for enemies. He will conquer them. But again, remember, those listening to Micah couldn't see him because he wasn't going to come for another 700 years. Micah didn't even give the time scale. So, so imagine a, a Benjamin, let's call him Benjamin, listening to Micah. And on old Benjamin's knee sits his grandson, a little grandson Reuben, and they look out over the walls and they see the Assyrian warriors. They know what the Assyrians do. They butcher people. When they conquer towns, they'd flay people alive, pin them to ground and flay them alive. They were savage. And they hear Micah preach. And little Reuben says, well, Grandpa, Grandpa, what are we going to do? They're at our gates. And Benjamin says, he will come and he will conquer. So you need to remember so you need to remember, Benjamin, he will come, he will conquer. Well, time goes on and Benjamin grows up. And 50, 60 years later, the Babylonians are at the gates. And Benjamin's grandson sat on his knee and says, Grandpa, what are we going to do? And Benjamin remembers, he, just, he will come, he will conquer. He will come, he will conquer. And the centuries roll on. And his grandson looks out at the walls. And this time it's the Persians. They're the next baddies who come on the scene of the Bible. He will come. He will conquer. The Greeks come. Great, great grandson by this stage. He will come. He will conquer. Down the generations, he will come. The faithful Israelites believed he will come. He will conquer. We might be suffering in the short term. (laughs) We, We might not see it with our eyes, but he will come and he will conquer. Until finally, uh, little Zachariah has learnt the mantra, he will come, he will conquer. Uh, and Zechariah grows up and becomes a priest. And his song changes. Come with me to Luke's Gospel. Luke, uh, page 856 of our church Bibles. Zechariah. And Zechariah has just been told that he's about to become the father of the man we know as John the Baptist, the one who's about to announce that Jesus is coming. So, so Zechariah's basically been told Jesus is now going to be coming. And what does he say? Do you hear the echoes of Micah's song? Verse 68, Zechariah sings, filled with the Holy Spirit, he sings, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn, as that strong horn again, remember? The horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant. Verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Zachariah's song changes, his mantra changes. He will come, he will conquer, he will come, he will conquer. He's heard it down the generations. Father to son, grandfather to grandson. And what does he say? He has come and he will conquer. He has come. This God man is here. He will defeat our enemies. In Zachariah's day, the Romans are ruling over him. But that's not what he's obsessed about. That's not what he's focusing on, is it? Do you see what he says? He's going to forgive us our sins. To show, he's going to show us mercy in the language of verse 72. Jesus came not as this uh, mighty human warrior to beat up Babylonians and Assyrians and Romans and Greeks and Medes and Persians. He came to defeat our real enemies. The enemies not just of the Jewish people, but of the, all of us. 
what stands against you in life. Ultimately, sin, Satan, the spiritual forces, and death itself. Almost all of our problems end up in death, don't they? We're scared of, of getting ill and disease. Why? Because we're worried it leads to death. And what will death do to us? Jesus conquers all of them. He conquers sin by saying, look, all that you've done wrong, all this rebellion, all this ignoring of me, all this looking for joy elsewhere, I will go and pay the penalty for it. It does deserve God's anger. There's no denying it. But I love you and I will die in your place for it. So he goes to the cross and cancels out our sins. To use the language of Micah a couple of chapters later, he talks about taking our sins and, and throwing them in the bottom of the ocean. They'll never come back. And therefore he defeats Satan. What was Satan? You know, Satan is real. Okay, there are real spiritual forces out there. It seems mad in our world, doesn't it? And I'm not saying he's a guy with a pitchfork who runs around. No, but he is real. What would he do though? What, what's his power? His power is to accuse you. Okay, forget all the spooky films where he possesses people. That's a weirdness. No, no, his power is to accuse you. To say this man is guilty. This woman is guilty. She does not deserve to go to heaven. But Christ has defeated Satan. Why? Not in some sort of arm wrestle but by tying for our sins, by ripping up the accusations that stood against us, so that now when, when Satan pulls out the sheet to see what have we done, what can he accuse us, it's gone. It's buried at the bottom of the ocean, so he has no power. Even death is defeated. As Christ goes to death, he really dies, because he's a man, remember, he's a man, that's why he has to be a man as well as God, he really dies. God can't die, but a man can. He dies, and so his body goes to the grave, and his soul goes to heaven. Do you remember what he says on the cross to the thief? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. So his soul goes to heaven and his body's buried in the grave. And therefore, he's really dead. Death is a separation of soul and body. He is really dead. But he's not defeated. Why not? Well, because both his body in the grave and his soul in heaven, although they are separated from each other, are still united to him as God, the son of God. Did you see? In that sense, it's like, imagine a warrior who, who comes onto the scene and he's got his sword in his scabbard. Do you remember scabbards where you keep your sword? And he pulls his sword out. The sword and the scabbard are now separated from each other, but they're still connected to him, to the warrior. As Jesus is in heaven, say on the Saturday, his body's still united to his divine nature. His soul united and in heaven. Dead, but conquered. Death is conquered, and then the next day, of course, he unites them back again and rises from the grave. Uh, therefore, when we die, if we've trusted Christ, although your body will be put in the ground, your soul will go to heaven, because you're united to Christ, and Christ is united to you, soul and body, death will not win. It may be a while until Christ returns and we're resurrected from the grave. It's not going to be on the third day for us, probably. <laughs> Who knows? But death won't win. Death has been conquered. There's a terrible film. I can't actually remember the name of the film, but where Brad Pitt plays Achilles, the great Greek warrior, the siege of Troy. It's pretty grim. People are getting heads chopped off all over the place. Uh, but there's one scene uh, where Achilles, who's the champion of the Greek army, goes out to, to face the Trojans. And they send their best man against him, this huge kind of thuggish guy, you know, massively tall. Uh, and Brad Pitt, Achilles, runs towards him and he kind of trails his swords in the ground. He jumps up, easy like, swings his swords, chops the guy's head off. And and the entire Trojan army just stand there stunned. And, and Achilles stands and looks at them and screams at them. Is there no one else? 
Is there no one else who will come against me? Is there no one else who can stand against me? And they just fade away. And Jesus on that, that Sunday morning, as he rises from the grave, is there no one else? Sin defeated, Satan defeated, death defeated. Is there no one else? No. Nothing. Nothing can defeat him. And he'll call you brothers. He says to you this morning, if you're not a Christian, or you're not sure, he says, look, come to me. Trust me. That's all you have to do. Turn away from your living for yourself and your your isolation from me. Come to me. And you're entirely safe. I'll forgive you. I'll protect you. I will give you eternal life. Trust me. And for those of you who are already his, Everything you you fear in life lies crushed beneath Jesus' feet. It may still feel very real to you. We sung earlier psalms, songs that that talked about the feeling of fear and separation. But the reality is they're all defeated. That's why we need faith, not sight. Everything you fear, shattered dreams, unfulfilled promises, disease, cancer... Uh, your sin overwhelming you, whatever it will be, it is crushed beneath Jesus' feet. You will not beat it on your own. If you go head-to-head with any of those enemies, honestly, they're going to beat you. You might have a temporary victory. Many of us in this room are still young. Depressingly, I look out and think I'm probably in the sort of oldest, I don't know, 10 at least. Many of you are young. Okay, you're fit, strong, healthy. You have a whole load of victories. But they're not going to last forever. Uh, he has come and he has conquered. Uh, what does that mean for us now? We'll just flip back to Micah for the last minute or so as we finish. Uh, Micah, chapter 5. What's Jesus doing? This conqueror. Uh, page seven, seven, eight. if you've lost it. Well, he's conquering. We haven't got time to look at it in any detail. Uh, But essentially what he's doing is bringing people into his kingdom. So this idea of crushing and conquering, the kind of language that you might have picked up as we read through, is not about physical violence. The church is never caused to to show physical violence to people. No no swords out in crusades or anything like that. That is a terrible thing. No, the conquering is spiritual. So this is Syrian in verse 5, who comes into our land. Well, Jesus defeats him, verse 6. He shall defeat the Assyrian. But but you see verse 5? How does Jesus do it? We will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Syria with the sword. Jesus defeats his enemies through his people, through his church. As they go out preaching the gospel, shepherd language is the language uh, of, in the New Testament of pastors. First of all, be the apostles, the prophets, but then the ministers, the evangelists. As they preach the gospel, the nations come to faith. That's why in verse 7, the remnant of Jacob just means the church is going to be scattered across the world, many peoples. And they'll be both like Jew and like lions. Verse 7, they're like Jew. The church is meant to be refreshing. When it, the church grows, it's good for the nation. All sorts of ways we can talk about that. We haven't got time now. But they're also like lions. Do you feel like a lion? Verse 8. The church is conquering. Why? Because they have the gospel of Christ, the word of Christ, this conquering king. So when they preach the gospel, it will bear fruit. People will come in eventually. A bunch of you in, in the, the CU are about to begin your, your mission week. Christ sends you out as soldiers. Yes, to bring refreshment, the gospel is good news, but, but he also sends you out as lions, 
soldiers in his army. Now, what do soldiers do? Well, soldiers dress uh, and they behave like their commanding officer, don't they? In that Greek army, everyone wanted a, a shield like Achilles, a sword like Achilles. They wanted to dress like Achilles. Well, so too with us. Uh, you're called to go out and fight as you evangelise, preach the gospel, pray for people. You're taught to do it like your commanding officer. What does that mean? It doesn't mean arrogance, does it? Christ wasn't arrogant. It doesn't mean a lack of loving kindness. It doesn't mean this kind of harsh, we've got the truth and you haven't. We're right, you're wrong. And how did Christ conquer? What did it look like when he was conquering sin, Satan, death? He was nailed to a tree, bleeding, naked, weak, ashamed. It was embarrassing looking. He was not looking like the man who would rule the world. He didn't look like God's king. That didn't look like a victorious moment. We think of the resurrection as the victory, but the cross is the moment that he conquers. So in Mission Week, what, what, what would a victorious, what would a, a Christ-like Mission Week look like? For the rest of us who aren't students anymore, but we want to, what would it look like? It's not going to look like power and glory. You will feel weak, look weak, maybe look ashamed, look embarrassed. But that's how God works. He chose little tiny Bethlehem to be the start of his great rescue. He doesn't choose the powerful and the glorious, but the weak and foolish. When he himself came to rescue, he did so nailed to a cross. There's so much more in Micah. Uh, We need to close. Do you feel defeated? Well, stand in your own strength and you will be. Your sin is too strong for you. Death is certainly too strong for you. But Christ has come. And he has conquered. And so we can say with Reuben and Benjamin and all those little Israelite boys as they grew up, that we also are looking forward. He will come again and he will conquer again. He will finally get rid of everything that stands against you. And so we live by faith, not sight. We live by looking to the future and not looking to our circumstances. He will come. He will conquer. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you that we, we don't stand alone, that all these things that overwhelm us in life, uh, that all these different uh, areas where we, we have such hope and then get crushed, we thank you that, um, that ultimately uh, sadness, sickness, death, mourning, sin will not win, have not won. We praise you that Christ has conquered and pray you give us the faith and hope to look forward to the day when he comes and completes that work. Lift our eyes, therefore, to the throne, uh, we pray. And might we find security in him. For we ask in his name. Amen.